people are afraid of new ideas. That is not a new thing. But if you're afraid of this idea, you should ask yourself about the root of that fear, because that is something you have chosen. It is a stereo that's being created. You're being manipulated by a craven press that wants you to be afraid. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Critical race theory is the newest front in the culture wars, and conservative activists are pushing to make Vermont one of its battlegrounds. At least 16 states are considering or have signed into law bills to limit the teaching of critical race theory, which, simply stated, considers how racism has been a powerful force in American history that has disadvantaged black people and other people of color. Here in Vermont, about a hundred residents packed a church in Essex Center last Friday to hear speakers denounce critical race theory, which they claimed was being taught in the Essex Westford schools, but the school district denies. Liz Cady, a newly elected member of the Essex Westford School Board, labeled the theory, quote, downright dangerous. Meanwhile, across the street at another church, members of the student led social justice union at Essex High School talked about the anti-racism work that students have been pursuing. To learn more about what critical race theory is and is not, and what underlies the attack on it, I turned to Emily Bernard, the Julian Lindsay Green and Gold Professor of English at the University of Vermont. Her latest book, Black is the Body, Stories from My Grandmother's Time, My Mother's Time, and Mine, won the Christopher Isherwood Prize for Autobiographical Prose at the 2020 LA Times Book Prize competition. Last year, Bernard was named a 2020 Andrew Carnegie Fellow, a prestigious $200,000 award given to scholars who are working on, quote, important and enduring issues confronting our society. Professor Emily Bernard, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you, David. It's always great to be here. Let's start with uh, what has become the issue du jour, and that is the controversy around critical race theory. Explain what critical race theory is. Well, first of all, I want to say that it is the issue du jour for some people. For others of us, it is not the issue du jour. Critical race theory has been around for a long time. The kind of preeminent anthology of critical race theory writings was published in 1996. a long time ago. Some of the people who were upset about critical race theory were not even alive when that book was published. It is loosely a, a, a set of, of legal theories. It applies, it sort of was emerged in the field of legal studies that was concerned with inequality. Um, critical race theory has been around forever. It's been around since the first people started talking about race. Frederick Douglass practiced critical race theory when he said, black people are human beings. People who worked to, on the issue of desegregation were coming out of that, that school of thought. So it has this name now, but it is not a new idea. And like any ideas, they evolve and they take on different shapes. If you are afraid of critical race theory, you are afraid of abolition. You're afraid of integration. The, the issue du jour it should be, is voting rights. If you are afraid or against critical race theory, you are essentially saying that you don't believe black people have the right to vote. That is how fundamental it is in this culture, those ideas. I, I want to be sure for people for whom this term is 
new or alien, just that um, you give us a definition. So we at least start with the basics. I understand it has a long history, but right. many people don't understand what it is that has the history. Okay. It, it's Google is your friend and there are books to read. I do not want to simplify this. As I said earlier, this, these are a set of ideas that are articulated largely in legal studies. They are a set of ideas that are attempt to, to think about race critically. It's right there in the title. What it, it seeks to do is to challenge prevailing ideas about race, ideas that are bound up in white supremacy. It is meant to challenge those ideas, to expose the fallacies at the heart of them. And to ultimately, it's about the project of equality and ending white supremacy. That is all it is. And if you want to do more reading about it, as I said, I, I gave you a title. Critical Race Theory is the name of the anthology. And you can buy it on Amazon. Why do you think this has bubbled up so furiously around the country? Now 16 states are considering or have signed in law bills that would limit the teaching of this. What is going on? What, what do you feel this is about? This is about racism. It is not complicated. It is not complicated. Um, people who are vulnerable to the kind of hysteria that has been fomented around a set of ideas are vulnerable to ideas that are uh, pernicious in our culture. They are the people who believe there's their climate deniers. People are afraid of new ideas. That is not a new thing. But if you're afraid of this idea, you should ask yourself about the root of that fear because that is something you have chosen. It is, it is hysteria that's being created. You're being manipulated by a craven press that wants you to be afraid. That is all this is. So if you are turning your attention toward this hysteria, you, you, it is important, I think, to do that self-reckoning because critical race theory is not coming to get you. It is already exists in the world. And you know the reality is, as a an, as an kind of counter ideology that runs counter to white supremacy, we, we are all part of ideologies. Our, our very selves are products of ideology. <laughs> you know, I mean, there's no, you, the self is a concept you know, much less race. So of, so, so of course, um, there's confusion about a term that has bubbled up into the public, public discussion. But ultimately, the ideas at the, at the heart of this theory are not new, they are not controversial, they are historical. And if you are turning your attention to this hysteria and internalizing it, you have to ask yourself what you're really afraid of. Because as you say, this idea is new for people. It doesn't exist in most areas of study, excuse me, most areas of, of professional, um, in most professions, let's say. It, it just doesn't exist. You know, it's not something people talk about. These are academic ideas. And frankly, within the field of critical race studies, there's a lot of debate. There's even debate about the term critical race studies. But that's what we do as educators and, and people who care about books. We debate these ideas. And I think that there's a lot of anxiety about this because there are, is a pocket um, of, of 
people in this country who are afraid of their ideas being challenged. Um, maybe you could change the ideas of these people. I don't know. This is not where I put my attention. And there are people who are, who are afraid uh, of the telephone. They thought it was gonna destroy you know, um, society. People have been afraid, we're afraid of feminism and some people still are, you know? So this resistance and this, this fear, uh, this hysteria is not new either. You know, when women in 1920s cut their hair and started smoking in public, there was so much um, panic about this. The Surgeon General actually issued a statement and basically talked about the particular dangers posed by smoking to women. This has happened, you know, not a uh, hundred years ago. Um, so resistance to new ideas is not new. And ultimately it is up to each of us to ask ourselves, why are you afraid of a new idea? I'm not afraid of ideas. I remember in college reading feminist theory, you know, the heavy hitters, Catherine McKinnon, Andrea Dworkin, Bell Hooks. I was electrified by the ideas I was reading. It changed my life. It changed the way I read books and watched movies and really moved in the world. Ideas are exciting. New ideas are exciting. If, if you're provoked by it and the general public discussion about it, read about it. So it seems baked into this um, kind of hysteria that has been whipped up around this is the idea that we need to protect our children from these ideas in their schools. You're a teacher. You're also a mother. Um, talk about the experience of teaching what may be new ideas to people in your classes at UVM, uh, a school that is majority white. So it may be very the first time that many of your students hear these ideas discussed. What happens in your classroom? It, what happens in my classroom is when I talk about critical race theory or any of the ideas that are, that are part of that uh, world of thought is the same thing that happens in any classroom. I'm not there to spoon feed my students information. I'm there to teach them to disagree respectfully, to open their minds to new ways of thinking, um, so yes, the people who are afraid of their children being exposed to ideas, I don't even know what to say to you. That's my job as a parent, to expose my children to the world, to new ideas. These people need to get out more. If you think that race is a static idea that's unaffected by history or politics, you need to travel. Because what you will realize is that even a concept like blackness in many other cultures has no relevance. It's not to say that other cultures are not divided around racial um, identities, but what blackness means in this country is very particular to this country. So this hysteria, this panic is about a myopia. It's, 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 it runs, it contradicts everything I believe in. And I believe in intellectual curiosity. I believe in growth and being a lifelong learner. So critical race theory is not something that's exclusive, um, you know, exclusively belongs to college classrooms. These are ideas that not only students should be exposed to, but their parents. I mean, it's, it's, this is really interesting. But as I said, it's also not new. It is, it's already here. Um, 
it's not, if the British are not coming, the British are already here. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, this, again, this panic, it just feels ridiculous to me. Um, so, you know, I mean, I, yeah, I, I teach my students. I mean, I wouldn't be a teacher. That's my job to expose them to new ideas. Um, and I'm really lucky that most of my students are excited to learn. That's why they come to my classroom. I wonder if you could talk about what you feel has been the impact of the Black Lives Matter movement uh, that really launched a year ago. And here we are, a year into this, uh, uh, you know, catalyzed, of course, by the murder by police of George Floyd, but then so many other incidents have taken place. Um, what do you think has been its impact a year out? Um, its impact has been tremendous. We, um, it's helped to galvanize, it's helped to galvanize, uh, I think, a generation of young activists. It's helped to reignite old activists like myself and others and older. Um, it's given us a sense of purpose and focus and it's been, a, it's been wholly positive. Um, but again, the Black Lives Matter movement, they were, uh, it, it's, a, it's a kind of um, a movement produced by other movements. You know, it's not, it, 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 Black Lives Matter, the, I, the arguments and the changes that it was created to try to affect a generation ago, another generation ago, this is not new. This kind of you know, attempt to organize and articulate the social realities and political realities for black people, this is not a new thing either. These ideas have existed since the inception of black presence in this country. What Black Lives Matter activists are doing is not unlike what abolitionists achieved. Um, so as I said, there have been evolutions in, the, in these ideas and they've been adapted, you know, uh, according to different political moments. But the idea that black people are human beings is sadly something that clearly needs to be repeated and, you know, re-emphasized today, but this is an old idea. There's nothing new about Black Lives Matter, but it's, it's simply now attending to this moment in a really brilliant and courageous way. Four years of the Trump presidency, we've had conversations during it. I wonder if you feel how you, you know, more hopeful, less hopeful, where does it leave you now in the work that you do and the issues that you write about? I think I have the same question I always am asked about this. You know, hope is a practice. Um, I, 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 I'm about my work, you know, and the work is, a, is, is, is part of the practice I do. It's frankly, it's part of a spiritual practice for me. So, um, you know, it's an extension of that spiritual practice. So, you know, I, I don't think we should spend time uh, rehashing old discussions about hope, which I think really came to the forefront after Ta-Nehisi Coates' book, Between the World and Me, where he really, you know, was very critical of this concept of hope. I've talked about this many times. Hope is a practice like any other, like writing. You have to practice it every day in the work that you do. You know, we, we're not gonna end racism through our feelings. We're gonna end it through the work that we do and the work we were trying to undo. So I, I'm not really, you know, what people's internal states are is private and individual. Um, you know, we have to work on our public behavior um, and how we treat our citizens. That's what's, you know, I'm not, I'm not gonna come to your living room and ask you how you feel and tell you how you think and, and police your inner life. You know, what we all should be concerned with is voting, um, 
poor people are allowed to live, uh, financial disparities, but people's individual internal states, they don't raise anybody's wages and they don't, um, you know, they don't start revolutions, <laughs> you know, they don't um, end disparities. It, they get, it's a practice. It's, you have to do it with your hands and your feet. Last year, you won a, a prestigious Carnegie Fellowship, uh, which is enabling you to uh, work on a new book. Um, talk a little bit about what you're writing about. The book I'm working on is called Unfinished Women. And what it's doing, it's a series of biographical essays. Um, and my ambition is to have a collection of stories that span the 20th century. So that I have someone like Zorma Hurston in the book. Um, and then I'm trying to think even in more recent history about the way that black women live their professional and creative lives. The book in the broadest sense is a meditation on American ideas about success. What happens when you're on a certain kind of trajectory and life throws you a curveball? Um, I'm interested in women and the choices they've made to uh, to enjoy, you know, rich careers. I'm one of the people I'm, but but are often faced with, um, you know, political resistance. So one of the people I'm interested in is Gladys Bentley, who was a, a fantastic uh, blues performer in the early 20th century and into the mid 20th century. Uh, she was an out lesbian who was absolutely unapologetic about her sexual desires and her gender identity. She would love. She wore a top hat and tails whenever she played um, music in, in Harlem and out west. Langston Hughes wrote about her in his memoir, and other writers were just tried to capture her genius, you know, in their own autobiographies. But when McCarthyism came to the fore, she had to refashion herself. And I am interested in her because to me that it's, it's representative of this larger question. You know, what happens when a political movement comes around that makes it really hard for you to practice your creativity? What happens to you then? And so instead of reading the choices she made um, in the wake of McCarthyism as failures or as, you know, um, I want to say the obvious sort of victory, but as, uh, you know, she, 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 she rose to the occasion, you know, and she always tried to, to do something new. And then there's Freddie Washington, who was in the 1934 version of uh, Imitation of Life, who was just this actress who shimmered off the screen, but she was too light to play black roles. And when, when she was paired with Paul Robeson in movies and it played in seven theaters, they actually had to darken her skin to try to make her look to pass for black. She left uh, acting. And she sort of became a watchdog in Hollywood and had a column talked about race and the things we're talking about today. You know, what roles are available for black people? What does it mean for black artists to, have to be, you know, limited in their creative expression? So, so really I'm, I'm interested in these women as individual people, but also the stories that their lives tell. And I've always been curious about the way we talk about success in this country as if it's sort of a linear march, you know, um, I've heard, how many stories do you hear? People talk about, you know, my, my, my parents or grandparents started with nothing. And I'm always interested, what is that nothing? You know, um, because I think that's different for different people. Um, and then what is the something? Is it material gain? You know, is it public acclaim? I mean, what is, what is success? Um, so that's loosely 
what the book is about. I'm, I'm very, it was very impacted by Saidiya Hartman's brilliant book, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments. And she sort of imagines um, the lives of black women who were not famous uh, in, at the at the turn of the century in the early 20th century. And so I'm interested in, in biography itself um, and how much, when we tell the stories of other people's lives, how much of it is invention and how much of it you know, springs organically from the life. I mean, we were always in the, we're always in the process of shaping stories, our stories of our own lives. So I'm hoping that writing this book will challenge me to think even more deeply about the practice of biography, because I think in some ways, you know, it's not as transparent as we often think. Uh, it's not as transparent as we often believe. And I'm, I'm interested in unlocking the mysteries of, of, of the writing of biography in general. You ask the question, what is success? As you look at the lives of these women, do you have an answer partway through your research? I think it's, it's, I'm interested in the stories that women will tell about their own lives. I want to give them the authority to tell. Um, I, it's a question, I mean, I start with Hurston in some ways, and it's an anchor piece in the book because the, what her life does is, is force us to ask questions about who gets remembered and why. You know, Zornel Hurston was, a, was a, I think, the first or second Black woman to win a Guggenheim Fellowship. She was acclaimed and, you know, very well regarded, you know, as, a, as an anthropologist and ethnographer and a writer. She dies penniless. Um, an, an unmarked grave, you know, it was only until Alice Walker makes a kind of trek to Florida to Hurston's birthplace and puts a marker on the grave and that was in the eighties. So how does that happen? How does it happen that someone with such, uh, you know, such an impact on the culture gets forgotten? And again, it's, it takes the women's movement, it takes, the, it takes the, the women's movement and it takes the black power movement of the 70s to bring Hurston back to the fore. So there, back to this question then about, you know, political movements and, and theoretical concepts. I mean, if those concepts hadn't been challenged, we never would have heard from Zora Hurston at all because we would still be teaching and reading according to antiquated ideas about merit and about literary merit. So Hurston's life I think is very instructive because she worked very hard to maintain a place on the national stage. But the fact that she was, she traveled a lot, she was itinerant, she wasn't sitting around and kind of collecting her papers. And in the course of doing research, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in archives and, you know, it's what I miss most about the before times is just being able to walk into a library and, and work with other people's materials. But I talked to some archives, uh, I talked to archivists who gave me a great education in the kind of cultural politics of creating archives. And they talked about, you know, it's, it has its own language, its own machinery. And if you're left out of that, it, it has an impact on what happens to your papers, you know, and, and, the, and the archivists were telling me, you know, in the case of, I don't know, some prominent, well-known white male writer, she said, you know, we don't even deal with these authors, we deal with their estates, you know, but if you don't know how to build an estate, um, and if that's, that's not part of your cultural legacy, that means that the, it, it actually has that, uh, effect that affects the kind of books we have to read. So, and that comes out of my American studies training. And in some ways is a critical race theory training because that teaches you anything is possible. History is not a closed book. You know, what, what historian, what scholars do we debate the past and what it means. Um, and so I'm interested in unpacking 
not, not just a story of biography, but the story before that, which is where, where materials are archived, housed. You know, I was a judge once uh, for a, a prize on biography and a, it was a biography prize. I was a judge and, you know, it was not surprising to get several biographies of John Quincy Adams, Abigail Adams, you know, one of the best biographies you've read that, that season was uh, Stonewall Jackson. How is this possible? Well, these bibliographies and footnotes are hundreds of pages long, hundreds of, hundreds of pages long. And that's because these biographers had access to a wealth of materials. But if you have lived a life on the margins and have lived a life that no one who has power has ever been interested in and ever interested in memorializing, you see the effect then. You know, so I'm interested in tracing that backward. As I always tell my students, you know, books don't come off of trees. You know, I, I love talking about the mechanics involved um, and the kind of history of literary production. You know, and that I think is also something that's missing in the simplistic discussions about critical race theory. Because what is so liberating about feminist theory, critical race theory, is that it denaturalizes things like merit. Um, ideas like tradition. Um, it, it, it exposes the politics that are always at the heart um, of, the, you know, of the status quo. And so that's what's the most exciting to me about the book. Not only the women that I, I, I adore, I have lived you know, in awe of Freddie Washington, Gladys Spintley, Laurel Hurston for, for years, but I'm interested in not only the stories their lives tell, but I, I want to write about the story that produces these stories, you know, in the first place. Finally, I want to ask about a story that you wrote for The Guardian uh, just a few months ago. Um, and it was about your experience uh, of adoption. And adoption is a journey from ignorance to enlightenment was the title on that. I wonder if you could just finish by saying something about um, what is that journey from ignorance to enlightenment that you experienced? Well, the Guardian piece is an excerpt from my book and the book was released in the UK a few months ago. So to kind of accompany the UK release, they, they used this and I was very lucky to have it for serial printing in the Guardian of all places. But what it means is I think pretty simple. You know, I, I write about it in the essay that um, I didn't really understand what it meant to be a parent before I became a parent. And there were a lot of things I didn't understand about love until I adopted my children. Um, before I adopted, I was one of these people who, and there are a lot of people who, you know, fear if they can make bonds with children who are not genetically theirs. And I would never have known how easy that is if I hadn't become an adoptive parent. I mean, I had, I believed in uh, biology and in the kind of primacy of biology and, and, and love connections. I believed in this before I became an adoptive parent. And that's a gift that adoption has taught me. You know, these kids are so much mine and also so much from another place. And it's a, it's a real, um, it's a true education in my life. And I'm, 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 I feel very, um, I benefited greatly from this lived experience. I wouldn't have known otherwise. I would have, I wouldn't have, um, I would have, I would have stayed, I would have um, always believed 
that, you know, there's something about it that was out of my grasp, but really, you know, love is the easiest thing in the world. And that's, you know, what, what has being a parent and even more being an adoptive parent has, has taught me. I was about to conclude my interview with author and UVM professor Emily Bernard, but she said that she had a few more thoughts that she wanted to share about critical race theory. She refers to a conversation that she had with her husband, John Gennari, a fellow UVM English professor. I have, I have another, some other things to say, though. I don't know if you could patch this in, but I want to, I want to have the whole thing to say about, you know, you know, just these successive um, theoretical lenses. You know, and I was talking to John, we were talking, I had a long conversation about this. You know, critical race theory, like any theory, provides a vocabulary to understand the world as it is. That's all it is. Um, You know, and so it's not new. And, you know, that we have been, our, our world has been shaped or affected by, you know, generations of theoretical concepts like modernism, you know, which is theoretical, but that the language of modernism was coined to describe the modern condition. Um, Did it affect your life personally? Maybe not, but in some broad ways it did. You know, um, you know, John said, you know, we're talking about this and he, we were talking about modernism and what is really at stake. You know, why are people so, re- people are resistant to modernism too. People are resistant to the enlightenment, you know? Um, and that's because of the f- of fear, you know? And, you know, if you, if you are going to shape your life according to fears that are, have been given to you, then that, that is your choice. You can do that, um, you know, but that, that is a limited choice and that's been born out of, over time. So it doesn't take a lot of deep thinking to, know that, that a fear-based um, response to the world, it's not how you grow. It inhibits growth. And so, you know, what I would really say is to welcome these ideas. If you're interested, um, if, they, if you feel that they will affect you, then, you know, do that reading and open yourself up to it because it's, it is a, a fascinating field of study. But in the end, it is a field of study um, and, you know, it's, it's actually, and I said, you know, in a funny way, um, critical race theory as it is, as it circulates in the, in the in academic worlds, one of my personal um, pet peeves is that the language is too obscure. It's too removed from everyday life. And that's why I don't use those terms in my creative writing. But my book is very much um, grounded in my education in critical race theory. I also like to say that as far as critical race theory, with my relationship to it, um, I exist because of critical race theory. You know, I, my job exists. But as I said, because Frederick Douglass saw and saw inequality in the institution of slavery, there, it's not a stretch to say, again, to, to kind of expose or to imagine that or to conceive of that relationship between Douglass and other, you know, kind of civil rights activists. And that's and then I come in, you know, then I have a job at a place like UVM. And I will also say that UVM was one of the, was I think even the first university in this country to where American literature was considered a serious field of study. You know, isn't that fascinating? An idea that that's fascinating, yeah. right? To learn something new, but it, was, it wasn't always considered serious. You know, there's a time when we, in this country, and I think it's still today, there's still a way that we 
uh, you know, see all things British as superior. But that, that idea, it determined what happened in the publishing industry and what happened in universities, what was taught seriously. So again, back to the idea that books don't come off of trees. There are people who, who gather and develop theories to move us forward. And, you know, life is all about change. And so let go and, you know, embrace the change. Or, you know, you can, you can live in the wilderness and, you know, not have a phone and live that way. But life is about changes, right? And it's about growth. And so this is just another chapter in our growth as a country. And it's all good. And it's wholly positive. And, you know, education is a beautiful thing. And it's also, uh, you know, what education represents is that journey from ignorance to enlightenment. That's what it is. You know, and education comes in a lot of places. It happens, as for me, you know, being a parent, and it can happen in the classroom. It should always be happening if, if you're doing your job as a learner. You know, you should be looking for occasions to, to learn new things. And that's all it is. Well, Emily Bernard, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much, David. I appreciate it. Emily Bernard is the Julian Lindsay Green and Gold Professor of English at the University of Vermont. Her latest book is Black is the Body, Stories from My Grandmother's Time, My Mother's Time, and Mine.